Take your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 16. We'll be there in a moment. John chapter 16. We'll <clears throat> talk a lot uh, about um, verses leading up to the, the verse that I want us to camp out in and land on for the majority of our time, but that's John chapter 16, verses 31 through 33, but we'll talk about the entire chapter. But again, just to bring you up to date of what's going on, and so I don't forget, because my, my notes are all over the place this morning, but we will not have Wednesday night services here on campus this week. We will postpone those once again, but we do, and we are scheduled, and, and we'll hold to our prayer summit the following Wednesday. So not this Wednesday, but the following Wednesday, we will have our time together in here on Wednesday night for the prayer summit. And, and I'm, I'm sure, uh, I say I'm sure, as sure as I can be uh, as a human, that the pastor will be back next Sunday. Uh, it, if, if he's not, we may just take a camera to his house, Brother Tim, and let him preach from there. But uh, I have all uh, confidence that we'll hear from our pastor next week. But in the meantime, this morning, I want to share with you, and the uh, pastor began to teach me this when I came on staff, and he would, uh, and I've heard it from other mentors as well. But he said, you know, when you share in a corporate setting uh, like a church in, in preaching, it should be the overflow of what God is speaking in and to your life and what he's doing in your life. So uh, with that in mind, that's what we're going to be talking about today. And I've entitled the message, Why God Allows Us to Have Problems. Why God Allows Us to Have Problems. You know, we went on the disaster relief uh, deployment a few weeks ago to Leesville, Louisiana, and we saw a lot of problems. Uh, you know, we saw problems just getting there. Uh, in Louisiana, for whatever reason, they don't think as highly as their road infrastructure as maybe Alabama does or other places. It's just, it's just bumpity-bump, and it will jar you and shake you. That was a minor problem. And then when we got to the church we stayed at that night, there was no electricity and therefore no air conditioning that night. And it was a cool 85 degrees in the Sunday school room where we set up our, our uh, air mattresses to sleep that night. Then the next day, we saw problems, really saw some problems. You know, you, you complain about having no shoes, Brother Tim, until you need a man who has no feet. And you would see these enormous pine trees just dissected a house. But miraculously, the uh, we, one house we went to, the, the husband and I think maybe a pet or two were in one part of the house, and it dissected uh, two rooms, and his wife, daughter, and son-in-law were in another part of the house, and no one was injured, uh, but they did lose their home. And we worked on two churches that had a, uh, significant damage. And then, you know, uh, the Sally that came ashore uh, around the Alabama coast, and we've had uh, some teams locally. Our team has not gone down there. We helped to get some skid steers there, but uh, a lot of damage uh, from Gulf Shores, Pensacola, Bruton, a lot of flooding a lot of trees down there, and there's problems there. And then that just multiplies because that, that brings about stress. You know, where, where are we going to live? What are, <clears throat> what are we going to do for a living? Uh, what, what now? Uh, then you throw in there the virus that we have been battling now for it seems like all of 2020, and then the civil unrest and that just bleeds and multiplies down to it affects marriages, it affects families, it affects churches. You know, so how many more problems can we 
go through? Well, here's a simple answer, as many as God allows. And so with that, I just want to share some things with you this morning, but um, just to get your mind going, and as far as like communication. Years ago, the Los Angeles Times uh, printed a sampling of signs that they had seen around the world that were attempting to communicate things from their native language into English, especially those that were visiting. And most of them, it came from hotels, but maybe one of them from a newspaper. In a hotel elevator in Paris, this is what the sign said, please leave your values at the front desk. Something was lost in the communication there. In a hotel in Zurich, it said this, because of the impropriety of entertaining guests of the opposite sex in the bedrooms, it is suggested that the lobby be used for this purpose. Not quite what they probably should have tried to communicate there. On a door of a Moscow inn, it said this, if this is your first visit to Russia, you're welcome to it. Not sure that that's what they really wanted to say there. Then years even before that, in a Soviet newspaper, it said there will be a Moscow exhibition of the arts and music, Brother Tim, by 15,000 Soviet Republic painters and sculptors and musicians. These were executed over the past two years. That would have been, that would have been an event to go to, I think. And then finally in Bucharest, the hotel lobby had this sign, the lift... You know what that is, right? That's an elevator. The lift is being fixed for the next day. During that time, we regret that you will be unbearable. <laughs> That's probably more true than not right there, you know, after, after a couple flights of stairs. But, you know, communication can be a tricky thing. And not only when language translation is involved. We often think of communication as word exchange or words being exchanged. But in fact... It is meaning exchange. Two or more people sharing ideas and understanding what that is meant, not just what is said. Amen, married couples? You, need, you interpret what is meant, not just what is said. I befriended a man on several years ago coming back from the Southern Baptist Convention, matter of fact, and I can't remember if Monica was on another flight because she was flying standby or if she just didn't make that trip, I can't recall. But I met a man, and we struck up a conversation, and he said, so what do you do? And I said, well, I'm still finding that out because it was not long after I was, uh, came on staff here. And he kind of looked puzzled at me, Brother Tim, and I said, well, I'm, I'm on staff at a church, and uh, I'm just returning from the Southern Baptist Convention. And he said, well, I am too. And he had just retired as a colonel in the army, and he was a chaplain, and they are pastoring a church and, uh, from Maryland. His name is J.D. Moore. Well, I looked on Facebook yesterday, and J.D. Moore, if you have, if, uh, he's just a very uh, colorful person. Uh, just loves to make jokes and, uh, and is very gifted at that. But yesterday, he had this on his Facebook, and it kind of reminded me of what we're talking about, communication. He said this, he said, I woke my sweet wife up, and that, her name's Colleen, he said, I woke my sweet wife up this morning and told her I'd like biscuits and gravy for breakfast. She said the recipe for said biscuits and gravy was in the kitchen drawer. <laughs> he said, well, I found it. I woke her up again and showed it to her and asked her what else she needed. <laughs> he said, I guess we miscommunicated. And so it's important to grasp 
the communication I think the Lord has for us this morning. So if you're physically able, uh, and uh, if you're here, or if you're at home, let's all stand together, uh, would you? And let's read John chapter 16, verses 31 through 33 together. The Word of God says this, and you may have a translation that is much like what I'm going to be reading from, but this is what the Lord says. Jesus responded to them. Now, to them, that's the disciples. So if you best you can, put yourself in that them this morning. So let's read it like this. But Jesus responds to us. Do you now believe? Look, an hour is coming and has come when each of you will be scattered to his own home and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, because a Father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Say peace. Everybody say peace. So that you may have peace. You will be suffering, parenthetically, have problems in this world. But look what it says. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. Father, it is in the name of Jesus that we ask now. Father, that we receive the communication from the Holy Spirit. Father, whether it be here or online, I pray, Father, in that name of Jesus, the name above all names, Lord, we ask now, God, I ask that you would mute anything that has its origin within me. But Father, amplify everything that your Holy Spirit has and wants to communicate to us this moment. Father, for your glory, God, may we have our hope in you and not improved circumstances. Father, may we have our hope in the promises that you give us in Scripture that is accompanied by pain many times. But Father, we thank you there is purpose in those promises that are sometimes painful, that we call problems. So, Father, would you speak to us now? We ask clearly and loudly, have our hearts ready to apply and our hands and feet to follow along so that we may leave here differently than when we arrived. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated here and at home. So in these verses in John chapter 16, this was Jesus' last occasion for teaching his disciples, and it was drawing to a close. And what I want to do, you have to listen quickly. We'll, I want to talk about three promises and how, how the Lord communicates those, and then we'll get into, I think, some takeaways of what the Lord has spoken to me, and I think, parenthetically, what he can speak to each of us this morning here and at home. But these final moments of tranquility among friends, and they were that, would soon give away to anguish in Gethsemane, injustice during prosecution, cruel ridicule, brutal scourging, and it was followed by suffering and death through crucifixion. Yet, listen, here's a great takeaway before we even get into the meat of what I believe the Lord has on my heart. Despite the Lord's own desire for comfort and encouragement, Jesus chose to comfort and encourage his followers. 
So listen, church, in spite of our great need for wanting to be encouraged, God, would you give us a good word? There's so many in our family that are, that are hurting today, physically, because of COVID issues. They're struggling to make a few breaths without coughing. And some are in the hospital. Some have just come through surgery. My goodness, I just spoke to a friend of mine who came here to volunteer this morning. They called him on the phone and said, there's been a status change with your mom. And she is in a nursing facility in Ozark. So he's going wondering what status change may be. There is hurt. And on the precipice of despair, even in our own family. And so we, and rightly so, desire to be comforted and encouraged. But listen, for us to follow in the Lord's pattern, He chose to comfort and encourage those around us. Even though things are going on here, we had a group of nine men leave their homes here and leave family members that were sick and said, I need to go and work in Louisiana. There being hundreds of others to do the same thing. There are hundreds of now on the Gulf Coast of Alabama, Mississippi, and, and Florida doing the same thing. They left their own comforts at home to encourage others. Folks, that's what the church does. That's what believers in Christ endeavor to do all the time. To not get called up. It's so easy to say, I mean my mind. But listen... Pride will get you every time when you fall into that trap. You need to look at the, at the needs of others, and the Lord's doing that here. Jesus comforted and encouraged his followers, selfless to the end. Jesus communicated three promises, I think, and these are not on your outline. Matter of fact, nothing is probably on your outline because Brother Ray was supposed to be here. But just write these things down. These three promises were to keep his disciples going. Listen, you've heard these things before, but you, we all need to be reminded of these three promises. Joy, love, peace. Joy in verses 19 through 24. Love in verses 25 through 28 of chapter 16. And peace where we will camp out in verses 31 through 33. So as we quickly examine the promises of Jesus, joy, love, and peace. I want us to take note, make a mental note of this. Now, if you remember, what did I ask you to do while you were, while you were singing and listening? To pray, God, would you rid anxiety in my heart? Start with me. I, I don't want that to cloud what you have for me. Not what Tim or Bradley has, not what Chuck has, certainly, but what you have for me through music and through the spoken word. God, rid anxiety. Let me be an open book and relaxed and be filled with your spirit. So with those things in mind, look at verse 16 here quickly. It says, a little while you will no longer see me. Again, a little while you will see me. Now, is this a riddle? Is this something that's meant to confuse so Jesus is offering his disciples a negative prediction followed by a positive promise. A negative prediction followed by a positive promise. You will no longer see me predicts his imminent death. Death on the cross while you will see me promises his appearance through the resurrection. The phrase a little while 
is here the possibility of us talking about a second advent at the end days. This prediction slash promise formula is established and is a definable pattern for the balance of this discussion in chapter 16 with the remaining 11 disciples. Their dialogue follows this pattern, if you would. Verse 16, a prediction and a promise. That's the resurrection. Verses 17 through 18, the disciples react. Have you ever reacted to a promise the Lord has given you? Well, hopefully so. That's, that's the definition of being a disciple. You have a thought, you hear something, and you accompany that with an endeavor, like a, a reaction. Then a prediction and a promise, joy, verses 19 through 24. A prediction and a promise of love, verses 25 through 28. The disciples react again in verse 29 through 30. And a prediction and a promise of peace, verses 31 through 33. Now look at verses 17 through 18. <clears throat> Therefore, some of his disciples said to one another, What is this he tells us? A little while and you will not see me, and again in a little while you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. Verse 18, they said, What is this he's saying? A little while. We don't know what he's talking about. Listen, that should be somewhat encouraging to us. Has there ever been a time when you looked in God's Word and you've had that moment you said, I just don't know what that means. Now, we may not, uh, in church, we may not really confess that, Brother Tim, because, you know, we're supposed to know what everything means in the Word of God. Yes, Chuck, that's right, I believe that, and that's exactly what I believe too. But can I tell you, can I just be transparent for a moment? There are many times when I look in the Word of God because it is so infinite, my finite, cookie on the bottom shelf kind of mind, is challenged. I just sometimes, I just don't get it. And the Lord says, well, read it again. Look at it again. Mull over it. Meditate on it. And I do. So church, there are times, even the disciple says, we don't know what he's saying. The disciples are not like an un, an unlock, a six-year-old uh, child asking questions at a funeral. They could only handle so much detail. Can I get a name in from somebody? We can only handle so much. Therefore, Jesus, in his infinite wisdom, is preparing for them for the difficult hours ahead. Do you think we have some difficult hours ahead for us as a people that, that God's placed in the United States of America? Well, November 3rd comes to mind real quickly, even before that, or whether or not there's going to be a Supreme Court nominee before the election. Now, we don't even have time to get into that. But yes, there's difficult times ahead. So how do we navigate those? Well, can I suggest to you, first of all, keep the main thing the main thing. Now, we should be praying for the election. We should be praying for those that will be elected. We should be praying for the family that just lost someone they loved. Gosh, church, let us not celebrate... Well, someone else is grieving. That is, that is antithetical to Scripture. And I won't get on that soapbox too much, but I don't care where we are politically. If the church ever gets to a point where we're just celebrating somebody going into eternity and we're not sure if that's in heaven or hell, if we're celebrating that, Lord, help us. We should grieve with those who grieve. We should cry with those who cry. We should rejoice with those that were rejoicing. If we lose compassion, church, we've lost it. Jesus Christ loved 
that woman who just passed away, so much so that he gave his own life for her. We need to be reminded of that truth, no matter where we stand politically in today's climate. Okay, now, that's chasing a rabbit, so let's get back on this, okay? Y'all keep me online. So Jesus was preparing, preparing for them these difficult hours ahead so he could best, without revealing too much specific information, Unfortunately, the disciples have become so agitated by the prospect of his going away that nothing would console them. Have you ever been around somebody that just is unconsolable? It's just chaotic. They're irrational. They, they, they won't take a breath. Listen, church, it's time for us to take a deep breath and allow the Lord to console us in these problems. He has said he has conquered the world, overcome it. So not even the promise of an indwelling God can console them. So Jesus is trying to keep the matter as bottom line as possible. He says, in a little while, I'm going away, and after a little while, you will see me again. That's my paraphrase. Yet this even stirred anxiety within the disciples. So in verses 19 through 24... We see joy be talked about. Real quickly, let's read that together. Verses 19 through 24 of chapter 16. Jesus knew they wanted to question him. So he said to them, Are you asking one another about what I said? A little while and you will see me. Again, a little while you will not see me. Verse 20 says, I assure you. Boy, that's a good word, isn't it? How would you like to hear that audibly from the Lord? I assure you. Man, you're talking about taking a breath. You're talking about stand, stepping back and kind of getting the whole picture. Listen anticipate and pray for the Lord to say, I assure you. Ask him, God, I want, to, I want you to assure me. He says, I assure you, you will weep and well, but the world will rejoice. You will become sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. Now here's where it starts turning the tide a little bit. And there's a great illustration. When a woman is in labor, how many moms do we have in the room today? And, and at home, just, just, just raise your hand right there in your living room or kitchen or den or wherever you are. So your mom's. How about, that, how about that first time you found out you're expecting a child? Man, it's just, it's just uh, it could have been, oh, no, or it could have been, oh, that, yes. And the husband, he's thinking, oh, that's great. But as time goes on, and that, that nine months turns into, gosh, this is the, the longest 18 months of my life. And, and you say, now this, this is, I'm not sure I signed up for this. But as that's going on, look what the Lord said. He said, when a woman is in labor, she has pain because her time has come. Now, I know when Monica uh, had our second child, the epidural wore off. And as the epidural wore off, my skin on my arm wore off. Just that, that's synonymous, by the way. I didn't know if y'all ever experienced that, but it's true. Uh, when, when a woman's epidural is wearing off when she's giving birth, the husband may lose a limb. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just here to testify. And so when that happens, her time has come. But when she has given birth to a child, when they hear that cry, moms, were you thinking about the pain you just went through? No. Joy had replaced the pain. And that's exactly what the Lord is talking about here. The joy. She no longer remembers the suffering because of the joy that a person has been born into the world. So you will also have sorrow now. But I will see you again your hearts will rejoice. And no one, man, this is good, no one will rob you of your joy. 
What is the joy of the Lord? The joy of the Lord is a strength. The, the strength in him is the joy of the Lord. So in that day, you will not ask me anything. So Jesus followed his prediction with a promise. The world's victory celebration. The, the demons in hell itself are celebrating because not only what's happening in the United States of America, not only what's happening in our infrastructure, but what's happening around the world. People are anxious and keeping their eyes on something that is tiny in a virus, and they're losing sight of the hope that is in Christ Jesus. Now is the time for the church to stand up and say, don't do it. Don't hope for better circumstances even. Sometimes we battle negative circumstances. Well, let's just pray it gets better. I'm not so sure that that's what the Lord wants. Sometimes we need to really take inventory of our lives saying, Lord, would you keep this problem here? Because it's in this problem that I'm closer to you and I'm learning more about myself that I need to get rid of. And we'll talk about that in a minute, like a refining goldsmith. It's now I can see clearly my impurities and the desperate, dark state of my heart. Lord, don't let the problem go away. Sometimes we get caught up in wanting some better circumstances and we lose hope. In, we don't have the hope in Christ. We want better circumstances, Brother Tim. And I'm not sure that's what the Lord wants. Okay. Let's get back on track here. So the Lord illustrated his promise with this poignant image of a woman suffering the intense pain, which not coincidentally was one of the curses of the fall in Genesis 3.16. As the pain grows, the transition from sorrow to joy nears. That's why the church says, come Lord Jesus even now. Not to escape, but to embrace the joy. Not to escape the pain, but to embrace the joy. So then in an instant, the greatest of human suffering becomes the occasion of our greatest joy. The affliction of the curse yields new life. The result of this intimacy of prayer is joy. Joy to the fullest measure. Now in verses 25 through 28, the Lord goes on and says, I have spoken these things to you in figures of speech. This is the communication that we talked about as we began our time together. A time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. And that day you will ask in my name. I'm not telling you that I will make a request to the Father on your behalf. Verse 27. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Verse 28. I came from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Jesus is predicting that the need for his teaching in this figurative language would disappear. The Greek term John used here to describe this obscure manner that Jesus is using in speech literally means byword, B-Y-W-O-R-D, byword. A byword, now in this sense, it's any term that has a complex technical meaning. For instance, not that I understand this, but I looked it up, and this is this, this, this where I say, for those financial, you may understand it. If I were to say, the annuity of your lifestyle is about to mature, okay. But a financial planner who is very familiar with the concept of an annuity will instantly understand the metaphor and the point that I would be trying to make. And that the results of the person's choices were about to come to fruition. Now, 
my way of saying it says you're about to pay the fiddler. You know, that's just, you know, what you've done, what you've sown, you're about what you reap. So Jesus here, I think, is in some ways regretting to have to circumspect with the disciples. But it was for their good. Don't miss that. If he does not paint the picture clearly, that is what's best for me. Is anyone else marinating on that truth beside myself this morning? Have you ever been left wondering what the whole truth was when you've gone through a circumstance? Gosh, I just don't get it all. It's those times when you need to stop, stop trying to figure it all out and say, Lord, I trust you that you're allowing me to see exactly what you want me to see. And what I'm not seeing, I will trust you in that matter. Listen, that's not called blind faith. That is called factual faith. It's based on the promises of God. He's already written down. He's not asking us to jump off a cliff and he'll catch us. He's saying, go back into my word. Read what I've said before. It's based on fact. That's what I want you to have faith in. The facts of my truth is never changing. I am the same today, tomorrow, and forever. I am omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. I am immutable. I never change. It's that, Chuck, that I want you to rest on. That is a clear picture. I don't have to have all the details. I just need to know the truth. Someone write that down. That's not in my notes. That's just from the Lord. So in that day, verses, verse 26 refers to the same as verse 23. Under the old covenant, people approached God through the priesthood, divinely appointed officials in the temple who meditated in the relationship between a worshiper and God. Now, during Jesus' ministry, he became the physical means, you know this, he became the physical means of a human-divine relations. People approached Jesus for miracles. We see that throughout the Old Testament, New Testament. They, they approached him for divine teaching. They approached him for revelation from God and for the forgiveness of sin. Jesus promised that after his resurrection, he would be the permanent bridge between humanity and God. Through him, in his name. Why, why do you think we pray in Jesus' name? It's not because it's in Baptist doctrine. It's not because it's in the faith and message. We pray in Jesus' name because we're stepping on that permanent bridge that relates between man and God. In Jesus' name, I praying this. So he, he's characterized as unrestricted access to the Father and his welcoming response as love. Through prayer, church. Through prayer, believers enjoy a love relationship with the Father that is no longer hindered by unpunished sin. Let me read that. Let me say that again. It is through this loving relationship that we enjoy a love relationship with the Father. It is no longer hindered by unpunished sin. And the means of this free exchange of love is, again, prayer. Now we get to the point where uh, I, I want to I have some takeaways as far as like verses 31 through 33. Let's read it once again. Jesus responded to them, Do you now believe? Now he was kind of questioning because if you look at the verses before that, verse 29, you, you wonder where the aha moment came from. Well, it may be this because it says, Ah, the disciples said. Now you're speaking plainly. Now you're communicating. Uh, it's kind of like J.D. Moore. Now, okay, I understand. You're saying you want me to make the biscuits. You're not wanting to make them. 
So he said, now we understand. Now that you're speaking plainly and not using any figurative language. Verse 30. Now we know that you know everything and don't need anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. And here's what the Lord says. Do you now believe? What does that remind you of? It, it automatically reminded me of Peter. He said, uh, yes, Lord, that, I, that's, that's exactly what I'm going to do. Feed my people. And then he, he made that other explanation. He said, feed my people, feed my sheep. And so the Lord is wanting to make sure, do you really believe all that you're saying? Listen, they did not know nearly as much as they had assumed. He responded with another prediction and promise. Jesus predicted the disciples would abandon him, undoubtedly thinking of this as the fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. He said, the hour was coming and indeed has already come. At that moment, the mob was already gathered by Judas and they had already begun to light their torches. Soon, they would surround Gethsemane. He followed this gloomy prediction with a promise. Am I the only one that that doesn't sound right? Jesus followed a gloomy prediction with a promise. Listen, that should encourage us. About the whole he song, gloom, despair, and agony on me. Deep, dark depression, total misery. If it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. Gloom, despair, and agony on me. I know you didn't come thinking, boy, I didn't know I'd get your hee-haw uh, quoted this morning, but it's, it's kind of like that. Sometimes we just, my grandmother used to say, just people are perpetually mule-lipped. Just, they always got bad news, and they want to one-up you. Oh, you think that's bad. Listen to what happened to me last week. But this gloomy prediction has this promise with it. While all of humanity would soon abandon Jesus, including his disciples, the Father would remain faithful. While Jesus did later cry out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This was not to implicate the Father for abandoning him, church. Jesus uttered this to call everyone's attention to David's prophetic statements in Psalm 22. While the emotional anguish of the cross was accurately reflected in the Lord's lament. He, like David, knew the Father had not in fact forsaken him. The Father and the Son are one. Nothing can possibly divide the triune God. So in light of Laura in Louisiana, in light of Sally in Alabama and the panhandle of Florida, in light of COVID-19, the coronavirus, in light of civil unrest, in light of we'll burn everything down, in light of this, this country being split in half, in light of a loved one being in the hospital, in light of a senior pastor not feeling well, in light of neighbors that are in the hospital, in light of marriages that are falling apart, in light of children that are going a wayward way, in light of all these things, God has never stopped being faithful. And he will never stop being faithful. He is always true, always righteous, always just, always on time, never early, never late, right on time, every time we serve an on-time God. 
So in light of all these things, in light of all these things, we should know that when problems come about, He is trying to communicate to those He calls His own. For the redeemed, for the ones that call themselves Christians, which, by the way, is only mentioned twice in the Bible, one time negatively, but for those that are the disciples of Jesus Christ, for those that have followed him, for those that believe he lived, died, and rose again, very well preexisted and will always exist, for those that are disciples of Christ, when problems come, the Lord is trying to teach us something. Everybody has problems. It's been said everyone has a problem, is a problem, or lives with a problem. Our problems may vary by type or severity. There are financial problems, there's health problems, relationship problems, guilt, depression, temptation, failure, stress, burnout, you name it, there's problems. We as believers in Christ are not exempt from painful problems and often have more problems than those that do not follow Christ. Because why? The evil one, the devil, our adversary, wants to derail our spiritual lives, wants to be us affected and conflicted with anxiety. So how does Jesus express this? He said, you will have tribulation in this world. Be courageous, I have conquered the world. Now this word tribulation, there in verse 33, means pressing or pressure that burdens our spirits. It refers to severe affliction or anguish. In other words, God says you're going to have some big-time problems. In Romans 8, Paul writes about all kinds of problems, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, and death. But then he writes in verse 37 of chapter 8, he says, you're more than conquerors. Y'all ever heard that scripture? You're more than conquerors. Have you ever thought about that? Now, wouldn't it be just good enough to be a conqueror? Wipe them out. My, our children play video games, and they're just conquering everything. They said, what's the goal? Conquer. Uh, back in my day, it was just called a board game, Risk. And that was the object, is conquer the world. But have you ever thought about being more than a conqueror? What does it mean? Conquerors defeat their enemies. If we are more than conquerors, don't miss this this morning. Online, don't miss this. I told, put down the coffee. Listen. Church right here, listen. If we are more than conquerors, we will make our enemies our friends. Therefore, God can cause even our worst problem to be our best friend if we let him make good come from them. Monk and I have said this past year, what if the worst time of our lives turns into the best time of our lives? That's not just trying to be cliche. That is standing on the promises of God. So, how does God work in problems? What does he do? First, write these down. These are the four points. So we're almost done. So these four are going to be quick. First, to direct us. To direct us. C.S. Lewis wrote, God whispers to us in our pleasure, but shouts to us in our pain. God uses problems to get us back on track and keep us on course. 
Psalm 119, 67 expresses that truth. God often uses problems to direct us, keeps us on track spiritually. Matter of fact, let's just turn in your Bibles to Psalm. Everybody knows where Psalm is, so you don't really have to hunt for it. Psalm 119, 67. At, at home, do it too, okay? Everybody swap or turn their page. I'll wait. Uh, that's usually when we hear pages ruffling, when I'll say, I'll wait for you to get there. So Psalm 119, 67. If you're there, say amen. amen. All right, you didn't tell a story, did you? You're really there? Okay, Psalm 119, verse 67. This is what the Lord says through the psalmist. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word God often uses problems to direct us, keep us on track spiritually. The Apostle Paul writes of God allowing him to have a thorn in the flesh. Y'all know that story. To keep him from becoming exalted above measure because of his abundance of revelations. Paul, much to our probably disappointment at times, doesn't say what the thorn was. But whatever it was, it was chronic and severe. Paul prayed three times for God to take the thorn away. Many scholars believe Paul's thorn in the flesh was failing eyesight. This is likely because Paul, of what he wrote in Galatians 6, 11, about using big words, big letters. Other scholars believe Paul was often weak and sickly because he may have contracted malaria on one of his missionary journeys. Still other scholars believe Paul's thorn was severe headaches. I'm not sure where they got that from, but that's what I read this past week. Well, specifically what I read Friday when I was polishing it up. I think God, in His infinite wisdom, did not want Paul to tell us what his problem was. Now, why? Well, one, because I think if we knew the problem Paul had, we would endeavor to have the same problem. Boy, I know what Paul felt like. Oh, man, my bursitis is acting up like you don't know, and I just I barely can't stand. I just praise the Lord. I know what Paul feels like. But I think probably another reason that the Lord had Paul not to share us what this thorn was is because I think we'd try to find a cure. It remained mysterious. Like If, if we knew what Paul's thorn was, I know how to make that right. I know how to solve that problem. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It goes back to what I said earlier. Don't be so quick to ask for a solution, but yet be quick and ask for the Savior. Somebody write that down. Don't try to look so quick for a solution, but look to the Savior instead. Don't try to find something good and ignore something great. Good is the enemy of great. So look for the Savior. So the Lord is using these things to direct us. Paul says God allowed him to have a thorn in the flesh to keep him from being arrogant. God knew Paul was going to be the greatest of all the apostles. Through Paul's three missionary journeys and 13 epistles that make up almost all the books in the New Testament, half of them anyway, he would do more to spread the gospel than anyone else would ever do. Therefore, God used Paul's thorn in the flesh to direct him away from pride and arrogance. Do you think Paul, in moments of spiritual maturity, said, God, thank you. 
thank you. I would rather be hurting from this thorn than be prideful and arrogant and away from you. Be thankful for what God allows in our lives. It helps direct us. Secondly, to inspect us. Now, that sounds really good, but I'm not sure we actually know what all that means, to be inspected. Just think for a moment. Have you ever been inspected by God? When I worked for UPS, you know, we'd have people inspect our loads or inspect our route. What always happens when we got inspected? Our faults showed up. You didn't put that package quite lip-loaded like you should. You didn't write the, the chronological number on the package there. When we was delivering, you were 15 minutes over allowed yesterday. We need to talk about that. Now, I'm thinking, dang, just 15 minutes? I thought I was at least going to be 30. And so, but they want to talk about those details. Sometimes it's a bit painful when we're inspected. Someone has said Christians are like tea bags. You don't know what's in them until they get in some hot water. I don't know, that, that sounds pretty good to me as far as like theology. Problems, listen, problems are really just tests to reveal what kind of Christian we really are. I've often said, and I'll, and I'll preface it this way, as, a, as an adult, okay, as an adult, the, 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 the circumstances and things in our life do not make us who we are. They only reveal who we are. As an adult. Now, I know as a child, you're, you're formed by things. But when we're, when we're mature, when something happens, that does not make me who I am. It reveals who I am. Here's a good uh, country way of saying it. What's down in the well comes up in the bucket. So when things are happening, that is an inspection Problems are really just tests. Peter writes, we're going to have manifold temptations. 1 Peter 1.6. The word translated temptation there means putting to the test. Then he tells us in verse 7, the latter part of verse 7 of chapter 1, he goes on to compare the testing of our faith, listening to the refining of gold in his day. I mentioned this earlier. You know this. As gold is heated, what happens? The impurities come where? To the top. That means they can be seen. The inspection can be seen. So impurities float to the surface and can be skimmed off, leaving only pure gold. In the same way, the heat of problems in our lives causes our impurities and defects to come to the surface. Now listen. The Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. So we may not even recognize our own impurities when they surface. Is anybody else guilty of that beside me? That's really not bad. But here's why that is. And we go into defense mode. Therefore, when we have problems, we need to be... Let's just go back to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. Now, I know there's not a lot of folks in here, but I can hear more pages than I should be hearing now or see more swipes. Psalm 139. Psalm 139, verse 24. When you're there, say amen. Amen. Okay, good, thank you. Here we are. See if there is any offensive way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. The psalmist here is asking God to search him Thoroughly. How many in here want a partial search? 
Be honest. Just, Lord, just what's there, Lord, just let me know. But we won't use the language, search me thoroughly. And to examine not merely my outward conduct, but what I think about. What are my purposes? What passes through my mind? What occupies my imagination? What secures my affection and controls my will? Now that's just some words I've written down in my personal time. That's the prayer that the Lord had me write. So God is our spiritual goldsmith who through all kinds of trials brings our sins and spiritual weaknesses to the surface so we can what? Confess them. If you don't recognize it, you will not confess it. So pray that you recognize it and recognize it fully so you can fully confess it. As much as I don't want to be searched thoroughly, do you think God wants to accept a partial confession? We used to tell our boys a half-truth is a full lie. Ask God to search you thoroughly so you can confess thoroughly and so you can be cleansed thoroughly. Let Him skim those out of our lives. So, God uses problems to direct us. He uses problems to inspect us. And then third, He uses problems to correct us. We all, all of us, Sometimes get off course and act like the prophet Jonah. When God told him to go east, he went west. Just the total opposite. During Jonah's Mediterranean cruise, the Lord sent a mighty storm. Literal storm. But I think it can be married to figurative storms in our lives. So God sent a mighty storm and he threatened to wreck the ship. The worst part of Jonah's sinful condition. I didn't see this until this past week. And I'll tell you what, I was convicted. I think the worst part of Jonah's sinful condition came about in verse 5. That ship's being tossed to and fro. He knows he should have gone east, not west. I mean, he knows that. He was a smart prophet. He knew what was in Nineveh. He had insight. So it's being tossed to and fro. The sailors are throwing stuff overboard, trying to save the ship and lighten the load. They're screaming and shouting. They're trying to control an uncontrollable ship. And Jonah's what? He's sound asleep. Jonah, to me, being sound asleep is an illustration of what happens when we get out of God's will. Listen carefully. We become so oblivious to spiritual danger and do foolish things because we are spiritually asleep. When we as believers, listen to me church, when we get off course and are content to stay there, God will send a storm to get us back on track. As long as our sin keeps us awake at night, that's good. But if we can be disobedient to God's Word, as Jonah was, and still go to bed tonight and fall fast asleep, we better look out for the storm is coming, and a loving God will send it to correct our course. So God allows us to have problems to direct us, inspect us, correct us, and finally, this morning, 
to perfect us. James tells us in his book that God inspired him to write, to count it all joy when we face all kinds of trials because the trying of our faith, what? Works patience and perfects us. The word translated perfect here, telois, means to bring to completion or maturity. Therefore, listen, to make us perfect, parenthetically complete, our imperfections are being removed from our character. The phrase wanting nothing refers to lacking nothing we need to be used of God. So, God uses our problems to get us ready to be used by Him. What did Jesus endeavor to do when He so wanted to be encouraged and spoken to? What did He choose to do instead? To encourage and speak to others. Listen. So many times we say sin is a choice, and it is. Love is a choice, and it is. Choose joy. But listen, peace is a choice just as well. Peace isn't just something that we say, okay, give it to me. We choose to have peace. It is there already. God uses our problems to get us ready to be used by Him. The Bible tells us God comforts us in our tribulation. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. So what does God want us to do? God uses our problems, past and present, to shape and mature us so we can serve Him by helping others. God allows us to have problems to direct us, inspect us, correct us, and perfect us. In light of all that's going on in the world today, what will we choose to do? Would you pray with me? Father, again, it is in Jesus' name and only because of the name of Jesus that we can pray to you. God, we thank you for that permanent bridge. Father, that allows us to have fellowship and relationship with you, our Father. So, Father, in light of that, and church, as we enter this time of making a decision, and that's not something that we say just because it's the end of the message, but I just feel led of the Lord to share with you in this prayer, in our time together, that when we sing praises to Him, when the truth is proclaimed, it does not return void. So I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, that the decisions that will be made, listen, not making a decision is making one. So I pray, Father, that decisions your Holy Spirit is urging us to make now will glorify your name. And church, they may be just by the hundreds in different and variations. First of all, if you're in this room and you do not know Christ as your king, and I mean that, your king, the Lord of 
every part of your being. If that has never been entered into, now is the time. That's the decision you need to make. I can, I can, I can, that's simple. If you've never trusted Christ to be the Savior of your eternal soul and make Him King, then that's the decision you need to make, whether right here in this room or online. Now, for, for those that have made that decision and are believers and disciples of Christ, what decision is it that God is wanting us to make? Well, certainly, to identify the problems in our lives, to lament over them, but to not stay in them so much that we lose sight of the Savior because we want so much a solution. So, believers, I believe that's one of the decisions that God wants us to make today. And I say that because that's the one He may have me make. So I join you. So, Father, forgive me for wanting a solution and not wanting the Savior. And I pray, God, that you lead us into that knowledge. And the Lord may be saying, you know what? You're not a member of a family of believers called Richcrest or others. So if you're here today or watching online, let me share with you. You need a body to be a part of. Even in this weird way that we're living in today's world, we are trying our best and you are doing phenomenally well of helping us to connect to one another. Lord knows we cannot walk this journey alone. God is there certainly, but God has created us to fellowship with one another and to be co-laborers in this world. If you're not part of a family of God, then that's the decision you need to make. And you can do that in several ways. You can fill out that information on the, on the back of the worship folders that you got when you came in, or you can text us, just text the word PASTOR, P-A-S-T-O-R, PASTOR, to 334-384-8080. I'm not going to confuse you with any other words. Just text us that, and somebody's going to get back in touch with you, and they'll say, how can I help? What decision was the Lord leading you to make? So church, that's what we're praying for. Lord, move in our hearts. Let us not rest until you return or call us home. May we press on, as the Apostle Paul said. Father, forget what is yesterday, live today, and trust tomorrow. Press on, Father, toward the high calling of Christ Jesus that is ours in heaven. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. The church said, amen. Just look this way for a second.